Pray with me. Lord, we have heard of your fame, and we stand in awe of your awesome deeds. And tonight, as we open up this text, uh, which is an incredible story about very famous deeds that you did on behalf of your people, we pray that your spirit would speak to us, and uh, we pray that we as a body would be edified, and we as individuals would be encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this last week on UK's campus, we had the 24-3 Bible reading, where we read through the Bible over three days. And on one of the days, I was there around lunchtime, there was an older man who stopped by. He was probably in his 60s. He had a big, white, bushy mustache, sunglasses, and one of those kind of tan round hats that are particular to somebody his age. And when he saw that we were reading through the Bible in three days, he just kind of started to laugh. And kind of chuckled to himself, and, and I, you know, I asked you know, what he thought about it all. And he said, you know, I can't believe that you guys are doing this. And what he kept bringing up was the fact that we were reading the whole Old Testament. He, he thought that that was pretty amazing. And, and I asked why, and he said, well, I just get tired of reading about the Israelites doing the same stupid things over and over and over again. And I said, well, I can relate to that, and I think God can probably relate to that too. And there's often an undulating pattern in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. There are great highs when Israel is close to becoming the people who God has called them to be. Crossing the Red Sea, building the tabernacle with free will offerings, victory at Jericho, Solomon's splendor. But then those highs are often followed by terrible lows, complaining and rebellion in the wilderness, the golden calf intermarrying with the nations around them, which leads to idolatry. So we often see an ascent that's then followed by a descent. But tonight in 1 Samuel 4 through 7, we're going to see the pattern at work, but it's going to be a little different. We're going to start with a descent that's going to resolve in an ascent. And that's a much better kind of story. And it's arranged as a chiasm, an out and back story. And so it's a little wonky on the slide, but I think you can I think you can get the gist of it. So it starts with the Philistines winning, and then the Ark is lost, and then the pivot point is where God triumphs over his enemies, and then the Ark is recovered, and then Israel wins. So it's an out and back story. That's the framework. Israel descends through loss in chapter four, but ascends through repentance and covenant renewal in chapter seven. Even more important, God descends when the ark is taken, but then he ascends in victory when he triumphs over the Philistines. So let's get into the text, beginning at chapter 4, 1 Samuel, verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped to Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped to Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. The first thing I want to point out is that Israel was never supposed to lose in battle. They were never supposed to lose. Not because they were mightier, and not because they were smarter, and not because they outnumbered the other army. Israel was never supposed to lose because their God fought for them in battle. And so if they lost, the problem was not God, the problem was them. And we know from earlier in 1 Samuel that God has judged Eli and his worthless sons. 
And now God is not fighting for his people. Now God is fighting against his people. And the elders of Israel realize this. They say, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So in one sense, the people treat the Ark like a talisman, kind of like a lucky charm. But it also smacks a little bit of a threat to God. Surely God wouldn't let the people be defeated and the ark taken by the enemy, would he? By putting the ark into battle, the leaders are kind of daring God. Help us overcome the Philistines or you'll pay the price when the ark is taken. Well, that strategy fails miserably. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So like Nadab and Abihu before them, who were priests, who were brothers, and who treated God lightly, Hophni and Phinehas are killed in the battle. And Israel's casualties go from 4,000 to 30,000 lost. And the ark that no one thought that God would ever let get taken is now property of the uncircumcised Philistines. This is a very bad day in Israel. And now the news starts to make its way back to Shiloh. Verse 13. When the messenger arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. You know, Chad mentioned last week that while Eli makes some huge mistakes, he makes some terrible mistakes, he's not all bad. He's not thoroughly corrupt and wicked. He prayed for Hannah and she had a child. He helped Samuel know how to respond to God's voice. And he accepted God's word that his line would be cut off. And here's another sign that at the end of his life, Eli got it right. As he waited for news about the battle, it says that his heart trembled for the ark of God. He was more worried about God than he was for himself. He could live with the consequences of his sin. He could live with the consequences of his son's sin. He could even accept loss in battle to the Philistines. But he trembled over the possibility that the ark of God, God's personal presence with Israel, would be lost to the Philistines. And that he could not take. Verse 17. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. And remember, Eli had gotten heavy off treating God lightly. But in the end, Eli's grief is not for himself or for his sons. His grief is for the ark of God. And had his concern always been for God's glory, then Israel wouldn't be in this mess. They wouldn't have God fighting against them. 
But at least in the end, Israel or Eli's heart is fixed on God and not on himself. Now the tragic news travels on. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You know, when Eli heard the news, he fell over and died, but he didn't say anything. Now his daughter-in-law gives voice to what losing the ark really means. The glory has departed from Israel. And another way you can translate this is glory has been exiled. Glory has been exiled. In chapter 4, the capture of the ark is mentioned five times. It matters way more than any other loss that Israel experiences. Because it's God's personal presence with Israel, which had led them across the Red Sea, sustained them in the wilderness, and helped them to be victorious in all of their battles. And now it's gone. The ark is gone. They had allowed their God to be captured, and now they were on their own. And Phinehas' wife doesn't have the will to live in that new reality. And she says, glory has been exiled, Ichabod, and she dies. But what the Israelites don't know is that God has descended into exile so that they wouldn't have to. God himself has personally taken on their exile so that they would not have to experience it. In Deuteronomy 28, we're told that the ultimate curse for breaking the covenant was the curse of exile. There would be many curses that would come before it, but even if after all those curses, if Israel still persisted in idolatry and wickedness, then another nation would come in and would take them to a foreign land, and they would be in exile. So that ultimate curse is in the background of this story, because Israel's spiritual leaders have forsaken right worship. They are corrupt. And as the leaders go, so go the people. Israel's become a nation that God has had to fight against. And that means that this nation deserves exile. But instead of the Philistines taking Israel into exile, God goes into exile when the ark is taken. He takes the curse of the covenant upon himself so that Israel won't have to bear it. The creator of heaven and earth permits himself to be taken by triumphant, shouting Philistines and put in the house of their god, Dagon. What humility, what sacrifice, and what patience on God's part to let that happen to him. God fights against Israel, but then lets himself be taken as the Philistines' prize. He lets himself be taken. So what will happen now? If exile is the ultimate curse, how will God fare in exile? 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. 
And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Oops. (laughs) How did that happen? Must have been a fluke. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Well, that can't be a fluke. God had said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and his offspring, and Dagon definitely qualifies as the serpent's offspring, and so God crushes his head. But why the hands? Well, the hands represent power. And if it wasn't clear the first time that Dagon doesn't have any real power, it's clear now that he has no power with his hands cut off. Instead, it's the Lord who has power. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. You see, the Philistines realized way too late that bringing the ark of God to their land was a very bad idea. They thought that Israel's God was stuck with them. And what they find out too late is that they're stuck with him. And now the men of Ashdod can't wait to get rid of this great trophy that they were so happy that they had won from Israel. And we get these great comical scenes of the, of the Philistines trying to take the ark to these different cities. And the people scream when they see the ark coming because they don't want it there. And all it does is just spread the tumors and spread this plague all around. In other words, God takes a victory lap around the cities of the Philistines. Verse 11. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It's a really funny story, unless you're a Philistine. It's a really funny story because what's their solution? We'll just return it. We'll just take it back. I don't know if they were thinking about sneaking it back in the middle of the night and bringing it into the Israelite camp, or if they were thinking about going up and saying, well, we found this and we think it's yours, and so now we're returning it. Well, it's not that easy. It doesn't work that way. There's, you can't just take the Ark of God and then return it when you don't want it anymore. There's a restocking fee, so to speak. And it comes in the form of a guilt offering of five tumors, five golden tumors and five golden mice. Remember last May when we were in Leviticus, a guilt offering is required for trespassing on holy space and holy things. And I would say that stealing the Ark of God and taking it to their camp qualifies as trespassing on holy things. And with a guilt offering, restitution is required on top of the offering. And so for the Philistines, the restitution involves these five golden tumors and these five golden mice. The five golden tumors points to the five cities that the Philistines had previously taken from Israel. So Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the five golden mice refer to the villages within those cities. And so the five lords of the Philistines take the ark, the golden tumors, the golden mice, and they put them on two milk cows. And those bring the the ark and the guilt offering to Beth Shemesh. 
So the ark's been returned. Restitution has been made. Everything should now be great, right? But it's not. Chapter 6, verse 19. And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Looking upon the ark basically means looking inside the ark, which they were not supposed to do. And so now the men of Beth Shemesh have trespassed just in the same way that the Philistines trespassed. And it makes us wonder, it doesn't seem like there's anywhere that God can go where he is going to be glorified the way that he should. Not even among his own people can he receive that. And so the men of Beth Shemesh shipped the ark to Kiriath-Jerim. 1 Samuel 7, 1-2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed. And I'm going to read this very slowly because it says some 20 years. In just the span of one verse, 20 years pass. So I feel like I need to read it slowly. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years is a really long time. It's a lot of time to reflect on what went wrong, on why God had to fight against Israel, on what kind of leaders would keep Israel out of this situation in the future? 20 years. What does Israel do during those 20 years? Well, they spend the time lamenting. They lament their condition. They lament their failure to be the kind of people that God had called them to be. And they lament their distance from God because they can't even risk being around the ark. They can't even risk being in God's presence. 20 years lamenting. But it turns out that it's time very well spent on their part, that 20 years of lamenting. Because at the end of that time, Samuel re-enters the story, and that can only be a good thing. We haven't heard from or about Samuel since the end of chapter 3, but now he's there to lead the people in repentance and in covenant renewal. Verse 3, Samuel says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So Israel confesses its sin, and repents by ridding themselves of their idols. Drawing water represents being purified from their sins, and they humble themselves through fasting. As a nation, they've determined to have no other God but Yahweh. This is all very good. But now, another battle with the Philistines looms. Verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, the last time there was a battle against the Philistines, God fought against his people. 
And there was very great slaughter and the ark was lost. What would happen this time? The people cry out for Samuel to keep praying for them. They said, don't cease praying for us. And he takes a nursing lamb and offers it as an ascension offering. It says a whole burnt offering, but if you remember from last May, it's an ascension offering. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. Stone of help. And the whole section that we've looked at tonight begins and ends with Ebenezer. In chapter 4, Israel encamped at Ebenezer before fighting the Philistines. But they lost because instead of depending upon the one who is our stone of help, they wanted to use the ark as a kind of technological weapon against the Philistines. At the first Ebenezer, Israel was plagued by bad leaders who were in it for themselves and led the people astray. But in Samuel, there's a leader who returns Israel to right worship. And for the rest of Samuel's days, the hand of the Lord will be against the Philistines and not against Israel. Isn't that good? So that's the sweep of the story. That's chapters 4 through 7, the whole sweep of the story. Israel loses the ark. Nevertheless, God triumphs over his enemies. The ark is returned, and Israel is victorious. From descent to ascent, it's a there and back again story. And in it, I want to suggest that we see the details of the Lord Jesus himself. And there are three particular ways that I want to point this out. So first one, number one, Jesus took our exile. He took our exile. Rather than have the people go into exile, God himself allowed the ark to be captured, and he went into exile in their place. And Jesus took our punishment for sin upon himself and went into the exile of humiliation and death. What a shame for the ark to be carried away by the uncircumcised Philistines. And what a shame for Jesus to be stripped naked and scourged and mocked and crucified. But for the joy that was set before him, calling us brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Number two, Jesus ascended with the spoils of victory. He ascended with the spoils of victory. When God went into exile, he wasn't a prisoner who was helpless at Dagon's feet. He triumphed over his enemies, and he came out of exile with gifts of gold. The same way that the Israelites left Egypt with gifts of gold and silver and bronze and precious stones. And Jesus, in Ephesians 4, Paul said, he quotes Psalm 68 to show that when Christ descended to the dead, he ascended, leading a host of captives and bearing gifts. Jesus, too, triumphs over his enemies and comes out with the spoils of victory. But here's the thing. The spoils that Jesus wins, it's not gold, it's not silver, it's not bronze, and it's not precious stones. But it's you and it's me and it's all the living stones who are in him. The prize that Jesus won is us, his people. Amen? And number three, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. 
When praying for the people who were under threat from the Philistines, Samuel offered a nursing lamb as an ascension offering. And surely in this we should see Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. As the nursing lamb was turned to smoke and ascended to God on behalf of his people, Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand, where he fights for us still, ever interceding on our behalf. So what looked like defeat and humiliation for God when the ark was taken was really just the prelude to victory and exaltation and a renewed people. And what looked like defeat and humiliation for Jesus on Golgotha was the prelude to victory over the grave and glory from the Father and a new people of God. For Jesus, vindication and glory came on the other side of the cross. And as his people, we should expect no less. We shouldn't expect glory on this side of the cross, but having gone through the cross. It's not going to be all sunshine and roses and charcuterie trays and green lights, nothing but green lights. The the charts of our lives are not always going to be up and to the right. Often, whether it's due to our own folly or just no fault of our own, we experience descent and we go down into the pit. Life doesn't turn out the way that we hope and we experience exile. But this challenges us to the virtue of hope. It challenges us to hope and be a people of hope. Hope says that after the trial, something will come that's better. Something will come that's better. Maybe not the recovery of what was lost, but something better that God had always intended to give. Grounded in hope, I remember that I am on my way. I'm on my way, and so I can handle trials and failures without despairing or even feeling defeated. Hope is living as a not-yet creature who is on the way. In the face of what feels like defeat, we don't say Ichabod, the glory has been exiled. No, we say there is good beyond this. I believe that there is good beyond this, and I hope in it. I don't know what it will look like. I can't know what it will look like, but I know it's there, and it's waiting. Who would have ever expected the ark to come back after it was taken? And who would have ever expected for Jesus to rise from the grave after he had been crucified? Paul says that faith, hope, and love remain. They're eternal. Hope even far away remains. We're a people of hope. We neither despair, but nor do we take a triumphal attitude toward the world, as if we've already arrived and we've already overcome the world. Because we live in time, there's a lot that we can't know. But whenever we see the ark carried off, or we see Jesus laid in the tomb, we remember, thank God, there's more to the story than what we see. There's the victory lap and the spoils of war, And the Lord Jesus, alive and ascended and ever interceding for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's uh, let's stand and we'll pray. Father, you are an awesome God. You've shown us that you are a God who endures shame and rejection for the sake of his people. Our Lord Jesus went to glory, but not before the cross. 
Help us to remember this when we're tempted to despair. Raise our vision that we may be a people of hope because you are a God of hope. And as part of the people of the risen Jesus, we thank you for this table that we're going to partake of. And we renew our devotion to him as we partake of his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.